So anyway, did you have you ever noticed uh, Ben Thompson joining me this week on the to- on the, the talk show? Uh, did you ever notice there's some websites where like the username and password don't get autofilled? Yeah, I think usually it's the website's fault. They, like mislabel the field or something. Yeah, and it's not like a, the thing where where like certain financial sites have like an opt out thing. It's like a site where there's nothing really super confidential about it. It should work. It just doesn't. Yeah. Well, I, I'm still scarred from the whole, like, they've had autocomplete for just, like, addresses, like, when you're buying something. And I swear those never worked for, like, the first three years. And maybe they work today, but I, I will never know because I refuse to use them. Uh, all right, you don't use the auto? <laughs> I'm still tabbing through every field, which uh, then brings me to the even worse annoyance when they have the fields in the wrong order and your tab suddenly lands you on the bottom of the page. Hmm. The credit card thing works perfectly for me. I, I can't remember the last time that the credit card autofill didn't work. Um, but the the password thing drives me nuts. And I, sometimes I think it's because it's like I've already saved a password for www.example.com. But right now I'm on store.example.com. And so it doesn't see it as the same website and doesn't fill it in. I, I don't even know. And then other times I think it's like you said, like they don't – have the password field correctly labeled as a password field, like yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've used, I mean, I've used one password for a long time. But the funny thing, is, funny thing is, I actually rarely use it because I have this, you know, this super convoluted system for for passwords that, um, you know, involves like a a a seed or random string shifting your your fingers like two things over on the keyboard. Explain um, it. Explain it in detail for us, man. <laughs> well, no, it was basically. It's. It, I. I actually don't mind. I. I feel pretty. I mean, I should never say this. I'm the, actually, I'm not going to say anything. As <laughs> for those that listen to ATP and uh, Casey's Showbot, uh, know that challenging challenging tech listeners to do anything is not a good idea. Um, but it's it's quite convoluted. It takes. It would take me like ten minutes to explain it, which is um, hopefully a sign that it's it's robust. But it's good though. It actually, I, I switched to this when, um, when the iPhone first came out, and you couldn't use like one password or anything like that. Um, and I needed, I wanted to have complex passwords and different passwords in every site, but still be able to somehow memorize them all. Um, and so it's it's been it's been pretty good. I mean, the most annoying thing is when like a site has a, a you know a breakdown or you know passwords get stolen they have to reset it and then you have to like a backup system for sites that have been compromised once and it gets it gets messy pretty quickly well the thing that gets me is that i'm more annoyed now when i run into a site where the password autofill doesn't work than i was back in the days when no passwords got autofilled yeah because it's like you you, it wasn't an annoyance before right i think it's probably like when they invented modern plumbing and people who grew up always having to go to an outhouse every time they wanted to go. And then all of a sudden, most places had indoor plumbing, but then every once in a while, you'd get to a place where you'd have to go out in the outhouse. It was worse. I'm sure that that was worse than when they were child, children and had to go in the outhouse every single dump. Yep, everything's relative. Right. It's like you, once the bar is raised, you can never go back. Yep. I think there's uh, there's probably a, I was gonna make some sort of well there's a funny there's a funny tweet on Twitter that day about um, someone's gonna make a podcast cut up of everyone saying can I swear um, and because uh, there's some <laughs> shitty joke to be made there except that I remember the last time I was on the show 
Uh, that was the time you, I think you actually did get busted for swearing on your podcast. Oh, you think it was your? Was it your episode? <laughs> I think so. I think it was because you. I think you picked me a couple days later because we had talked about it on the podcast. Like, yeah. So I actually uh, met the guy from Apple Podcast. He asked me to tone it down. Yeah, and that was the one where the shit hit the fan. Maybe yes. I don't remember. Who knows? But that's funny because you don't seem you seem like one of my least profane. I know. I think I had one word. Guests. The whole thing. Maybe, maybe, but maybe it's the exact same thing you just talked about. When there's one password that doesn't work, it stands out more. Whereas uh, you know, if there's just a whole string of expletives, they kind of just run into each other at, at some point. Yeah. But there's just one, one finely placed one. It really, really jumps out. <laughs> I'd like to be known for that. The well placed expletive. <laughs> Well, please text Blue That's a good site. Um, so I guess there's not much going on except that we're. It seems like everybody has has collectively sort of uh, finished digesting WWDC and Google I/O. Yeah, no, I like agree. And, and uh, a couple of good pieces this week. You had a good piece on. Let me try this. Stratigraphy. Stratechery. Second one's the charm. Stratechery, because yeah. it's tech. Yep. I, I, and I did switch it up, so it's my fault that now no one knows how to say it. <laughs> uh, but you did have a good piece on, on Samsung, because that's the other a little tidbit. And who knows? You know, one one quarter is, is a data point, not necessarily a trend. Um, but Samsung had a, had a pretty bad quarter. I mean, their last one wasn't hot either. So it, right. this, this is, it was soft, I think is the word that they use. Um, so this is, uh, this is not by any means out of the blue. Right. Um, well, let's talk about them first. I think in broad strokes, what it seems like we're seeing is that Samsung had for a while occupied a certain middle ground. Floating, you know, making some money on a lot of high quantity of lower end smartphones and a decent sized chunk of higher end smartphones. But that they're, we're seeing signs that they're getting pinched on both sides. That Apple still it dominates the high end and as, you know, has the, throughout the whole era of smartphones in terms of profit uh, and revenue. And on the low end, they're running into various competitors, right? And China, in particular, with uh, how do you how do you say it? Uh, Xiaomi. Xiaomi. Now, how do you spell that? Uh, X i a o m i, which is the the. It's actually it's originally a Chinese character, and that's how you use use what's called pinyin to to write it in English. So. But it's it actually it works it works well. Any name with an X in it looks good. And and it's 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 a company that's very interesting to me. And you know far more about them than than I do. It's actually one of the main reasons that I thought to invite you on the show this week. And if I don't know a lot about them, I can't help but think that there's an awful lot of listeners of the show who don't, and maybe even haven't heard of them before. But I think. Uh, I, th- I think they should be on everybody's radar, especially when it comes to Samsung. Even though I think for the last year or so, there's been a lot of stuff in the press and in the, the investor world that sort of has them as an, uh, somebody who Apple should be looking out for. But I think I think it's actually – I think you've made this point pretty well that it's Samsung. Well, there, I mean I think the, the number one thing about Xiaomi in particular is uh, is you have to really – um, and there was this really like breathless, like 
feature in Bloomberg and they had like Xiaomi Week, you know, like talk about Xiaomi, the, this big, this big thing. The, like you have to clearly delineate between China and the rest of the world. And, um, and in China, Xiaomi deserves all the hype. Like they are, they're killing it. Um, they but are a Chinese company. They are a Chinese company. Correct? And, and th- just in general, and this goes for a lot of the Chinese companies in general, like, like China really is its own completely separate world where very little applies to what happens the rest of the world, particularly in the West and, and vice versa. And a lot of that's because of the great firewall. Um, part of it is because of, you know, just cultural differences. Um, and part of it is just because it's such a huge market. It's like, I mean, us, us companies get criticized for being, you know, too us focused, but why wouldn't they be? It's, you know, it's 300 million of the richest consumers in the world. Like it makes sense to start out there. Same thing if you're a Chinese company, like you're, you're sitting, you have a billion customers, um, a very large, you know, again, this an absolute number of which are very rich, um, and a good number of which are getting richer. Um, so why not focus there? And, um, and so that's just, it just in anytime you talk about Xiaomi or anything about China, it's really important to kind of like draw the two. Um, I think Xiaomi is not much of a threat outside China. Um, but in China, they are, they're a big deal. And in, in China, they're a threat to Apple as well. Um, and, but that's why you have to make the distinction. Right, and China is big enough that that even if they're a Chinese only company, it's it's big enough to matter. Oh, it's big enough to matter. I mean, Apple China is going to be Apple's biggest market in like five years or something. Like, so it it matters just to give you an idea of 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 what a massive market it is. Like, and so it does matter, even if even if uh, Xiaomi uh, only threaten Samsung in China or only threaten Apple in China. Because China is such a significant market for both companies, uh, that means the companies as a whole are threatened. Hmm. And part of it, too, is this is where um, being based on Android can work in their favor, is if they were running their own proprietary platform, it might be a problem that they were strong only in China. Right. Right? Like maybe sort of like what what BlackBerry was like back when BlackBerry had a huge market share in the US and and was sort of non-existent elsewhere. This is now this is going back pre-iPhone. This is like early 2000s when when BlackBerry was this abnormality. It worked for them because they didn't need software. It wasn't really about apps yet. It was just about communicating. And the people in the US who had Blackberries were for the most part communicating with other people who had Blackberries, so it was it was okay. Whereas now, where you need an app ecosystem, right? You know, Xiaomi can can capitalize on that, even if they're only really strong in China because Android is Android. Well, I mean, that it's actually funny because that's the other part where China is just a different world, right? We like I, as a rule, I think we talked about this this last time. Um, is you know you you have to you have to be one of the two. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, you have to be one of the two, but in China, that's the big exception, right? Because most of phones in China are on AOSP, the the open source Android, and there's a whole plethora of services that fill in there. Like there's UC Web, which is the biggest browser. It's just bought by Alibaba. There's a whole bunch of app stores, um, a few of which, like, there's been some competition, some of which are kind of emerging as as the key ones, and so there's almost like 
there is a whole separate ecosystem of services that most of the phones there use. And it actually, in so in, in China, Chinese developers are used to this, right? There's actually services that help you get your app on all the different stores. So you can be everywhere. And it's funny, like if that, if that sort of whole ecosystem were in the West, uh, that would, it would actually totally transform the, the market here because it would really weaken the, the kind of, the importance that the Play Store does have in kind of making, giving Google full control um, of that, if, if that makes sense. So it's, I mean, everything there is just really, it's really so different. And it, there's lots of things that are interesting for for Western companies. I mean, it means Google is really not important at all there. Um, they're not important because they're blocked as far as search, but they're also not important mm-hmm. because they don't really control Android there. And the only Western company actually that really matters is Apple, and that's because they sell hardware. So do you think that's already having an effect on Samsung's numbers? Oh, yeah. Or for, do you think it's more – it's already partly China, but is it is it only China? Is it is it worldwide? I think um, I think for sure – so you, you alluded to it before. I think Samsung has, has a problem on both ends. Um, the, on the high end, uh, they – I think they, they, they got a lot of high-end customers, I think – for two specific reasons. Again, this was more conjecture previously, but now that it's actually happening, I think we can say a little, you know, a little more certainty. Um, one was the iPhone has always been relatively limited when it comes to carrier distribution. Um, you know, they were they were stuck at like 220 for like two or three years, and even before then, there was even lower. Um, and and that left a good 500 carriers around the world where there was no iPhone. And presuming you were loyal to your carrier, and in richer countries, people tend to be more loyal to their carriers. Um, uh, you would, and you wanted a high-end phone. Well, there you, there was no iPhone choice. You, it was Samsung or HTC or whatever those. And Samsung has always been, you know, a very good competitor. You know, whatever you think about their design decisions, they're they're a very well-run company. They're a very good competitor. They have great marketing. They pull all the all the levers. And if there were no iPhone. You know they they would continue, I think, to do very well at the high end, and HTC would probably be doing much better as well. Um, but now the iPhone has really started to again uh, move, expand its carriers, and part of that is the big ones, which is NTT Docomo in Japan and China Mobile in China, but also lots of little ones. Like I'm here in in I'm back in the states now. I'm in Madison just for the summer. And a big carrier here is U.S. Cellular, right? It's the fifth largest in the U.S., but still a lot smaller than the other ones. They've never had the iPhone. Now they do. And there's lots of these little ones that any one of them by themselves doesn't mean much. But when you're adding like 50 of them, like Apple has, that that just increases Samsung's competition where previously they didn't have any competition there. Yeah, it's fill, filling out the long tail of carriers. Right, exactly, exactly. And Samsung has owned that long tail. Like Sam's, Samsung's big advantage still remains um, uh, their their relationship with carriers and how they own that whole connection. They deliver exactly what the carriers want, what they need. Um, and really, they, they've kind of stepped into the Nokia role, which that used to be Nokia. Nokia had all the, except for, except for the US, Nokia had relationships with every carrier. They, they delivered everything that the carriers wanted, that they needed, and that gave them a, that's really important in the mobile business. And Samsung has kind of inherited that, and they still have that advantage. Um, you know, what made the iPhone so unique when it came to carriers and that sort of thing was it was the first phone that people 
where people valued the phone more than they valued their relationship with their carrier. And yep. that really, you know, upset the whole Apple cart and it is lessened Samsung's advantage um in the carriers where they're competing directly with with the iPhone. Yeah, I think like go back, you know, pre smartphone, you know, and you'd go in and you know, the big ones I remember, at least here in the States, were always Nokia and uh, Ericsson and eventually it was Sony Ericsson. Um mm-hmm. but they were seemed to me like as somebody who never was really into cell phones before that, I mean, I'd have one just for the sake of making calls and, and truly rudimentary texting. Um, but it just seemed to me that those were the two brands and you'd go in. But it never really seemed to matter too much. You know, it was it was far, far more about choosing between, you know, Verizon and Singular or, or whoever, you know, whatever the names of the various carriers were in the States then. It was really mostly about which carrier store you're going to go into. Yep. And and even even now, I mean, what made the iPhone so so unique um, is you know it was the first phone that people were really willing to switch carriers for, and that gave Apple all the negotiating leverage with with carriers from that from that point on. Yeah. Um, but even then, there were there was still a limit to the number of people who would who would do that. Like you know, there were still people who were going to stay with Verizon no matter what, um, and. Uh, and so it's it's been that dynamic, you know, has has helped Samsung and continues to help them. Um, but as Apple expands, that kind of again picks off, you know, just a lot of these, a lot of the long tail, exactly as you said. Yeah, and you made the point that one of the things to understand the dynamics of this is that for practical purposes, no, it's not really a hundred percent. Of course, nothing ever is, but practically speaking. It, it it's best to think of it as this: everybody is going to own a smartphone, right? Which is it, there's there's very few things in the world that are like that, especially in tech. A lot of the things that are like that are things like I don't know, like like wash machines uh, or yeah, or having a TVs, toilet in yeah. your house, yeah, or TV. A TV is a good example. Oh, a TV's sure. even what? But that's the thing, though. TVs even will ultimately have less penetration than than a smartphone, which is which is pretty amazing. Right, because a lot of it's going to end up, I think, maybe a little bit more towards one TV per household and one cell phone per person. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And even if you go to multiple TVs per household, it still is probably going to trend not towards one per person, but but less than one per person. Maybe you'll have one in the master bedroom and one in the living room. But tablets are clearly eating into that, you know, where a lot of, you know, personal consumption of video – uh, is clearly going towards tablets and smartphones. You know, like like if you know the average number of TVs in a house, I'm sure has, if anything, it might be going down because if you were going to have one like for your teenager and let your teenager have a, a TV in their room, um, that might be a PC and a tablet now. Right. You know, PC for the games and and a tablet for watching video and TV. Well, it, it, just to just to kind of rat hole a little bit more. Um, one thing that's actually really interesting about these Samsung results, uh, we'll get back to the high and low and stuff, but is they talked about the fact that they they felt their tablet sales have been hurt by their big phones, their phablets. Right. Um, which uh, which building on this point, I think there's there's a lot of conjecture, and I think rightly so that a lot of tablets are used primarily for for TV viewing, basically, um, but especially one, worldwide. Yeah, look, you know, not the U.S. market where the iPad has disproportionate share, but if you look worldwide, 
at tablets. And, and so many people had so many observations from CES this year that there were a lot of the no-name brand Android tablets that are clearly designed knowing that they're just going to be used for consuming video. Yep. And, and the, the other thing that, about video um, is like video – uh, video in Asia is is a lot different than here in that um, basically everything is available very easily. Like, I mean, it's yes, there's things like Hulu and Netflix here, but there's always kind of a bit of a challenge of seeing like whatever's up up next, like whatever sh- hot show is going on. And right now, they're mostly Korean shows, um, like these soap operas, or uh, like. At, once it's aired, it is available for streaming within like an hour, um, if if not faster. And it's 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 interesting because I don't think it's actually there's not really cra- it's it's not really frowned upon. It's not I don't think anyone really sees it as an issue. Um, least, is it legal? It's it's not. It, it's, you're saying it's not legal, but the 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 IP infrastructure there is such that nobody really. I'm not uh, I'm not sure to be honest. I mean I I. I it may be one of those things where it's nominally legal, but like no one actually, no one, no one really cares. It is for it is true that in many countries the IP infrastructure is not there, but also, um, or maybe even the IP culture. Frankly, yeah, that's a big part of it. That's a big part of it as well. Um, the other thing is like, uh, yeah, just in general, there's a different. There, I mean, because it, it's very open, right? I mean, even in um, in some of the more more, you know. I don't advances in the word, but um, countries that have had a longer history of, of IP enforcement, like like Japan or, um, I mean, Taiwan a little bit more so. Uh, I mean, like, although it's not, there's still you can still find like counterfeit bags and stuff, but they're they're more like in the alleys, right? It's not like on the street corner, like like in some parts in Asia. So it's a little stronger. Um, but there's yeah, they're they're very publicly available, um, and and to watch them. And to watch, and so to watch TV like that is is very common. And uh, I I don't know all the countries in Asia, obviously, but in my experience, you know, TV is is just as much a thing there as it is here, if not more so. Um, and and so yeah, th- that whole idea of that them being used primarily for that use rings very very true to me. Hmm. Well, all right, and then you were saying that Samsung explicitly said, with regard to their poor results or disappointing results, um, yeah, and they had a whole. And list. it's not just that they're down; they were down. It was somewhere around sixteen percent less profit than than was expected. Right. I mean, because that's the weird thing about reporting results, right? It's all about expectations, and right. they were they were under their expectations, they were under analyst expectations, and by you know pretty significant amount, and. Um, right. No. So we can even even if we go with the hey come on analysts just make this stuff up at, at least Samsung's own guidance is a you know should be a fair measure that most companies you know usually put out guidance that they expect to at least be able to meet like it's a genuine it's one if it's just you know and Apple has run into this many times over the years where where Apple will will post results that are pretty close to their guidance Maybe a little up, maybe a little down, but generally pretty close. But if they're way less than what analysts had had projected, it's it's uh, headlined as a big miss. Yeah, well, it's weird because the, like the worst. So the worst thing you can do is miss your own guidance, right? right. You're going to get hammered for that. Um, the second worst thing you can do, well, there's the, the missing analyst guidance. But then there's also if your guidance is lower. Than what analysts expect your guidance to be, like, and so that's that's when Apple takes hits after earnings. It's usually because their guidance for the following quarter is lower than what analysts anticipated it would be. 
Um, whereas everything that happened in the previous quarter, like that's almost always baked in. And Apple's never missed like meaningfully, right. uh, at least in you know recent history, their recent results. So yeah, it, I mean, so it's all it's all it's all an expectations game. I know people um, get frustrated with Wall Street, but it's it's a lot more. It's not as it's not as ridiculous as people think. I think the the main thing with Wall Street is it, Wall Street is is a stock inherently is all about the future. It's all about so whatever you've done in the past, it's only useful in so much as it's an indicator for what will happen going forward, right? It's not a this reward is, system. Bringing Apple into it is sort of an aside, but I think it's interesting because there has been. I mean, this is not this is something that they actually. Um, came out and said is that we're going to try to be a little bit more accurate with our this Apple that that you know a couple of maybe was it a year or so ago maybe a little bit more than yeah a year I think ago. it's been a couple of years but yeah and that they said look we're gonna we used to you know give you a, a lower end of our guidance yeah which is translated means we really lowballed the numbers and always put out a number that we knew that we could beat yeah and therefore you know anybody who is trying to accurately gauge you know what to expect from Apple had to pick a number that was higher than that. And so you had to, you know, and analysts had to pick a number that was different from Apple's always higher because Apple, you know, lowballed it serious. I significantly lowballed them. Yep. Um, I think that the change, you know, and this is one of those, it's something that started in the post Steve jobs era. Um, I think it's probably had the intended effect in that it seems as though Apple's guidance and Wall Street guidance have become much more largely aligned. And whether it's a little bit up or a little bit worse, it it seems like the stock has become a little bit less volatile just when results are are issued. No, that's a really good point. I think you're probably exactly right that this is probably a a cook thing. You know, Jobs probably enjoyed – beating expectations, you know, by, by a lot. But the reality is that actually introduced more uncertainty. In, yeah, I think in, Jobs' perspective was probably along the lines of screw those guys, screw them. Well, I, I think well, Jobs, Jobs liked the surprise, right? He liked right. to pop out and say, wow, look, at we we just murdered results, right? I mean, right. it was another chance. Um, you know, he loved the reveal. Um, where, But I think it was bad for Apple. You're exactly right, because analysts had to make, had to pick something up. And what I just said about, about the current results no longer being interesting is because of this change. It's because they they are almost exactly right every time, and right. so now everyone's focused on their their going forward estimates. Yeah, yeah. I think that out, I think under Jobs with the lowball numbers, it was like screw them, let them figure it out. Whereas the Cook idea is let's help these guys out because they're wrong. <laughs> they're always wrong, <laughs> and it hurts but, Apple. Because, you know, we don't we, – we keep so much close to our best. So let's – yeah, and them being wrong hurts us. So it's in our interest to help these guys and give them guidance that actually is truly guidance. Yeah. Well, the other – I mean, this is another thing that just really attests to kind of like Cook's um, – how impressive Cook's operation is, is how the way that Apple is so exact on their numbers every single time. And that 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 goes back to the operation side of it, right? Operations is it's not just the actual making; it's the predicting, it's the you know modeling, like knowing like what we're going to sell of what, and like Apple for you know ever since they did this change, and I think uh, Horace Edgew has a chart um, that shows like how much off they've been. 
like has been in almost almost exactly. And I think a, a lot of the optimism for Apple actually is because last quarter they actually did beat themselves, right, in a way right. that they hadn't previously. And so that showed that even Apple was surprised. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's kind of uncanny how perfectly almost it feels like they can predict the future. Um, yeah, and sometimes I feel like it's because of changes that they couldn't foresee, like not necessarily demand, but pricing of components or something like that. Like something maybe dropped in, you know, dropped in price and and helped margins, and you know, they, they just couldn't foresee that, you know. Right. Well, I think right. No, if if that's what happens, it's usually what it is. But I do think it was last quarter. Like they genuinely beat their numbers, yeah. and they're like, yeah, we we had a really good quarter, and. Um, I think that's why, like right now, you know, there is so much positive sentiment around Apple. I think is they've kind of, you know, I, the the challenge with, you know, I think Apple's actually mostly gotten past the the kind of big number. It's not really a big number problem, but like the the problem where because they're such a big company now, like any percentage increase is going to be small because the the denominator is so huge, right? And conversely, any small percentage difference is actually going to be a large number of dollars. Right. Right. So Apple could miss by half a billion dollars and it's like, holy shit, they missed by half a billion dollars. And it's, you know, it's, it's a couple of percent. Right. No, exactly. And, uh, but I think like, so 2012, I think late 2012 was like their, their growth rate peaked, right. That ever since then, they their growth has slowed considerably. And I think like that really I think justifiably, like really depressed the stock for for a few years now. But I feel like like that's been worked through the system, and like this is the like with any company that's like changing up, like that's just shifting in a different phase. There's there's this part where it's and like a lot of stock is is an expect expectation sort of thing, like people understanding and grappling with your business as your business changes. There's going to be upheaval, and and I think and so you talk about a company like Intel or like Microsoft that has to like. That has to you know make big changes. Um, once the, once you get through those changes and you've kind of shifted expectations and people are now used to something else, then you actually do get more breathing room. And I actually feel like Apple has kind of crossed that that chasm in a lot of ways. People are cool with you know six percent growth, ten percent growth. Yeah. Um, and whereas before they were punished because they were no longer growing you know twenty thirty percent. Um, and, and I think that's that just goes back to like there's there's the famous saying like in this what is it in the something about the stock market the short term is a is a something machine in the long term it's a weighing machine the idea is like over over time over a few years like the stock market actually is very very rational and it does exactly what you'd expect it to and there's no point in getting caught up on kind of what happens day to day or quarter to quarter, because it, it usually does work itself out in a way that makes sense. All right. I'm going to take a break in just a moment. Um, but I, I'll come back to that because I think it plays into the next point I wanted to talk to you about, which is software as differentiation, which I think, and the reason I think it's a good parlay is I think it helps explain Samsung's problem, which is something you wrote about this week. And I also think it's something that might finally be sinking in in Wall Street's consensus estimate of Apple is that tablets aren't just tablets, you know, that the iPad and iPhone do have a, a sustainable position because of the differentiation. But, but hold that thought. Think about it while I um, thank our first sponsor, our good friends at Squarespace. Now, you guys know Squarespace. I talk about them all the time because they're longtime supporters of this podcast and many others. Uh, you can get a free trial. 10% off 
if you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code JG, just JG, my initials at checkout, what do they do? They let you, you sign up for Squarespace and they help you build a website. And it's so easy, simple, easy, beautiful design, a whole bunch of beautiful templates to choose from, drag and drop content. Just, you don't have to code it up. You look at it and you add the features you want, position them on the page where you want by drag and drop. Uh, If you want to get into the nitty gritty, you want to edit CSS, you want to inject JavaScript and stuff like that, you can do that too if if you want to, if you know how to. But if you don't, you can build a complete website by drag and drop. The other thing Squarespace has that is, again, I'll use the word differentiation, is award-winning 24-7 support. They do it through live chat and email, uh, and it's located. They have support centers in uh, New York City, Dublin, and Portland. Portland is new, I think. And, and I think the logic behind that is that's what helps them have 24-7 is, you know, between Dublin and New York City and um, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, it's covered all across time zones. They've got plans that start at 8 bucks a month, 8 bucks, and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Uh, responsive design, everything looks great from phones to tablets to 30-inch uh, displays. And uh, online stores. Every site comes with an online store. So go there. Go to squarespace.com slash Gruber. You can go that way. You can use that URL. They'll know you came from the show. And when you sign up, use that code JG, and you get 10% off your first purchase, and they'll know that uh, you're a listener of the talk show. So my thanks to Squarespace. All right. So tell me about the – tell me – you tell me about – software differentiation as, as an advantage and, and the lack thereof as a disadvantage in, in the mobile. I, I think the easiest thing is look at, look at computers. I mean, like I have, if you have a MacBook, it runs OS 10. If you have any other computer, it runs, it runs windows. And even if you had the exact same hardware, if you have a preference for OS 10, um, you're going to buy the one that has OS 10. And, and even if, even if they have virtually identical hardware, if the OS X machine costs $1,000 and the Windows machine costs $800, well, it turns out there are a lot of people that will pay the extra $200 for that machine, and that $200 is pure profit, right? The, even if they the don't the perceive machine. a difference in the hardware. Exactly. Even if you're there and if side-by-side side with the screens off, you don't see an advantage to the MacBook Air versus the HP, you know, HP Air, whatever they call their their you know. Well, even their- if Apple, even if Apple licensed out uh, their hardware, right, and it was like literally every single component on this computer is identical. It has the same trackpad. It has the same keyboard. But it doesn't run OS ten. But it doesn't run OS ten. Like people right, will pay a premium for that. Um, right. You know, I, I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir here with you know with, with you and your audience, and and but and by definition that premium is is profit uh, because like you know Samsung's a big guy like all these guys are big guys HP's a big guy like they they are all going to get the economies of scale that Apple is getting you know so if the parts for this machine cost seven hundred and fifty dollars let's say. Um, it, and the guy who has Windows charges eight hundred. Well, he has fifty dollars of profit. That's not very great. Um, meanwhile, Apple's charging a thousand. That's 
$250 of profit. That's 33%. That's pretty, that's very good. Um, and that, that difference is solely because that it, it runs, it runs OS 10. And it turns out that Apple is the only company that, that sells OS 10 and you can't buy OS 10 separately and put it on your own computer. You have to buy the hardware to get the software. And, and that makes the hardware, that makes the hardware valuable. And, um, you know, I think just it it's and it's it's valuable in a way that generates profit, right? It's all it's all upside because software is software is free. Like, I mean, it doesn't it's not free to make, but to make one additional copy of software is free, right? If I right. already have OS ten, to make another OS ten is literally just clicking a button, and and it's the exact same thing with phones. Um, there, you know, if you prefer iOS or the iOS ecosystem, um. Guess what? There's only one way to get iOS, and that's to buy hardware from Apple. And so, even if HTC or Samsung like made an, an iPhone where every single component was the same, and the look and feel was the same, and the camera was the same, and the button was the same, um, Apple could still charge a premium because people will pay for iOS. Yet, iOS doesn't cost Apple anything, and you know, so that's that's why Apple dominates profits. And that's why I think, to your point, why Apple Apple is safe in a lot of ways. Like, Apple- and it, it leads to less fluctuation year over year and less pressure to come out with. And this is something Apple has gotten dinged in the press year after year after year with new iPhones. Well, it, geez, this is almost just like last year's iPhone, but it's a little smarter and the small, you know, a little uh, faster and the camera's better. Uh, and I think you see that with Samsung flailing around with a lot of gimmickry in their new phones. Like when uh, a year and a half ago, when they came out with the ones that that tried to read your eyes, yep. you know, for hey, you look up, we'll pause the video for you, or we'll scroll the web page while you're moving your eyes, uh, which wasn't, you know, and by all the reviews I've seen, wasn't really a good feature. But it, it they needed some way to to do that to stay above the fray of all the other Android phones that are. You know, were similar to the previous Samsung phone, whereas Apple doesn't really need to worry about gimmicks like that because you know people who want to buy an iPhone are going to buy the new iPhone no matter what. Right, and so and the problem is, and this is this is actually why in the long run you end up not having hardware comparable to Apple. Why? Why? Did, I mean, why doesn't some? You hear this a lot, like why aren't there any laptops as good as MacBooks? I mean, there there are some. We, Lenovo, but, I would, I would always hold up as the one who's who's closest, and yep. and, and I, I would, would also I would take, I would take, I would take a ThinkPad uh, if they had better screens. I would take a ThinkPad over a MacBook. Th- those machines are are amazing. Well, I've always said that if I couldn't, it, it, like, a, as a what if scenario, you know, it's it's not going to happen. But if you had to choose between a let's say a ThinkPad running OS ten or a MacBook Pro running Windows, which would you prefer? And I, I wouldn't even hesitate. I'd rather have a ThinkPad running um, OS X. I don't think I would prefer a ThinkPad running OS X versus a MacBook running OS X. Um, but I would at least try it. The nub it's, is it's the, the software nub is, an acquired, is an acquired taste. I get that. It's the software that's more important, right? To no, me exactly. Than... Well, so what happens though is, um, so so let's say you start out at point zero, right? And uh, the Apple, you have two, you have Samsung and Apple, say, and they make identical phones. And they and one runs Android, the other runs runs OS ten, or sorry, iOS. Uh, 
Yeah, because right. Like, like hypothetically speaking, let's take Samsung's copying to the logical extreme. And, and legalities aside, let's say that they made a genuine, complete clone of the iPhone. Right. So, so the, it's perfect. It's exactly the same. The problem is, and so they're, the problem is, is obvious is because Android's open and there's lots of hardware manufacturers out there. Um, someone's going to come along and make another, another Android phone, and maybe they copy it too, and they make it the exact same way. But what are they going to do? As Samsung. So Apple's priced it at six hundred dollars. Samsung's priced it at six hundred dollars. Well, the other guy's going to come in. He's going to price it at five hundred and seventy-five dollars, and then Sam, everyone's going to go buy the other one. Um, and then Sam, and so what happens? Samsung's going to respond by lowering the price. But the problem is, as you lower the price, now your margin's getting compressed, and so you start cutting corners. So suddenly the display is not quite as good, or the button quality is a little lower, or you know. And so what? And so what happens is because you're forced to compete on price, uh, the quality actually ends up going down along the way because it's like you know it's death by a thousand cuts. And that's why, and you saw this in, in PCs, this is why laptops have always been, uh, Windows laptops have mostly always been inferior from a quality perspective. It's not, it's not be, it has nothing to do with the software per se, it's because they're stuck in this game where they have to find margin somewhere. Right, and, and but then they screw up the software because to try to squeeze little bits of mar- margin is why they do things like pre-install the, the Norton uh bug you until you try to sign up for Norton experience, right? Yep. That you go in and buy a brand new laptop and you open it up and if it's running Windows and it's from most OEMs, you're going to have stuff that's not from Microsoft, not officially part of Windows and it's all annoying and it's it's there to try to a lot of it is there to try to increase the margins because Norton gives them, you know, 2 or 3 bucks for everybody who who has it pre-installed. So that's actually that's actually where most OEMs make all their margin. Like actually, most most computers are made at cost, and then any profit margin they make is from the crapware, right. and that's why to get a crapware free machine, you have to pay more. Um, and like, and, and the thing is, is like the you know in Windows, you know, I, I obviously worked for Microsoft and worked, worked for Windows, and they would bitch and moan about how terrible the hardware was. But this is all Microsoft's fault, right? They it it. it it's one of those things where it was always to their benefit, right? The, the whole thing where you want to commoditize your compliments, like the things that are important for your product, but that you don't sell, you want them to be as cheap and as as low cost as possible. And so it was in Microsoft's great benefit that computers decreased in cost so rapidly, and there was all this competition and driving down prices. But the problem is, as with anything, you take it too far, and then, oops, you're stuck with you're stuck with these terrible machines with creaky hinges and crapware all over them. Right. And and then that rolls back, and now it's being ascribed to Microsoft. And they're like, well, Microsoft always has, is on crappy machines and whatever. Um, and and it's the same thing with Google, except really Google's even more ruthless, right? They don't they want everything to be free. They want everything to not cost anything. They want people to be online as much as possible, as easily as possible. And they are more than happy to watch Samsung and HTC and everyone kind of kill themselves here. Um, and again, Google is quite smart about this because to our earlier point, because smartphones are going to be everywhere, everyone's going to have one. Like there, there really is no floor to like how cheap or crappy a, a phone can be because someone is going to buy it. All right. There's a um, tweet from earlier today. I think it was earlier. Yeah, earlier today. From our uh, 
mutual friend Benedict Evans, and I think it's very, very well sum summarizes the situation in the long term. Here's his whole tweet. Posit. OEMs will be able to differentiate on this common platform has been a false promise for 30 years. Right? That's and cuz and and we're kicking it old school here, but I mean this was something like when Apple was in trouble in the 90s that was over and over and over again people would say, "Well, what Apple should do is start making Windows machines too and differentiate on on design." Right? So Apple, you know, Apple's strength isn't Mac OS are getting killed because the Mac is so much smaller than Windows and everybody's on Windows. What Apple's good at is design. So Apple should make Windows machines and differentiate on design. And that's, it's, uh, actually, that's exactly, I would say that's exactly the Sony PC business, right? That was the art, you know, the oh, whole totally. idea of Sony's PC, yep. right? And how'd that work out? They, Vio is now its own company, <laughs> and they're right. money losing one at that. Um, right. I yeah. would say Sony gave that as good a run as anybody. Yeah, and they were very nice computers, right? And and you know, innovative in certain ways too. Like Vio's got small, like usable small laptops. You know, way like, before everyone else. Yeah. Way before everyone else with you know with with minimal compromises. Uh, and it just it, – it's not sustainable on a common platform. Yeah. No, it's like um, – I think uh, like the analogy is almost like air travel. I and mean, this is – I'm not sure if this is going to work because it literally just occurred to me. Um, but like everyone like bitches about like, oh, we want good service on airplanes and like we want more seat – more more seating area and stuff like that. The problem is every single time an airline tries that, like Continental did a thing where we're going to have better service. Air, American Airlines did a thing where we're going to have you know more more room in our aisles, and we're going to advertise based on that, and we're going to be able to to charge a you know a slightly higher price. Well, guess what? Everyone kept going to Expedia or a kayak or whatever and picking the lowest the lowest number. <laughs> this is very painful to me because um, uh, two or three years ago, Virgin America came to Philadelphia, and and it was a, the most welcome breath of fresh air in the history of. PHL International Airport, <laughs> uh, and they are leaving Philadelphia <laughs> International Airport in two months because no one wants um, to pay. Well, it's not you know, and they're not going away, but it, clearly it wasn't a big success for them, and they were always more expensive. U.S. Air is the carrier that dominates PHL, and you know it's a, one of their hubs, and they're they're they've got this merger with American, and part of the concessions for this merger is they had to give up gates. At um, Washington and, National, yeah, and one of the New York ones. I, I'm guessing it's probably JFK because JFK is bigger. Um, that that combined U.S. Air and American have to give up some some number of their gates at those. And Virgin decided to take. I think I don't know if they took them at Washington too, but I know that they took some of their JFK ones. And they literally don't have enough airplanes, so they have to take the airplanes that have been flying the Philly routes and. They're going to be flying JFK routes, and they're they're like it's like a waiting list. It's like trying to get Washington Redskins season tickets or something. It's like uh, there's there's like a five year waiting list to get new airplanes from Boeing or something like that. They can't just order them. Yeah, and I don't think that they were. I you know I'm pretty sure Virgin America has never turned a profit anyway on a quarter. No, well yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, like it just doesn't work because. It's one of those things like air air travel is a is a commodity and right. 
And it's so it's a, I don't know. I think the analogy sort of holds up. It is a commodity, and it's there's an economy of scale. Like it, it, it's that's the thing is that you've kind of and there, that's the magic. You've got to get off the ground somehow, and get this this uh, mass of of users to sustain it. If you're going to be different, yeah, it's, and it, they just don't have it. That Virgin just America just did, didn't have it. At least out of Philly, and you know, yep. Well, and I think you, 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 there's the whole business thing, right? Because they're the ones that are price insensitive. Um, and yeah, I don't know. We're, I mean, we're not an airlines. It is funny right. though. Like, there's actually a ton of people that I know. I, I myself am kind of an air, 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 airlines geek. There's some people I follow on Twitter, and it's funny. Like, there's actually it seems like there's quite a few people in 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 tech or whatever that, as a side thing, like love to follow like the airline industry. Um, it's so much better than others. I mean, I and I'm I actually have gold status on U.S. Air because I that's all I ever fly. I mean, every flight I take, whether it's a vacation or whether it's work to go to the West Coast, it's always U.S. Air. And because so many of my flights are entirely across the country, I've somehow gotten to gold status, uh, which is good customer service wise. Like I can book tickets now that uh, that are like refundable. I can change my tickets and not not pay a fee like literally not even pay like a nominal fee it's kind of awesome and if i could book a flight on virgin america and it costs more i would do it in a heartbeat because it's such a nicer experience unfortunately you know you you have a you know well-known reputation for valuing quality yeah. in the products you buy that that is un, that is not broadly shared <laughs> yeah. i've been on i've been on flights I, I can't remember the last time i flew and you know for the most part it was all sfo to philly although sometimes depending on the hour i i would i would even take this is what i would do too is i would fly philly to lax lax to sfo on virgin rather than a non-stop which i have numerous numerous choices between sfo and philly on us air right i'd rather have the layover in lax oh yeah well, I mean, once once you're flying far enough it, it it makes enough of a difference right especially with uh, wi-fi it, it's everything i mean it's it's just so much more comfortable the plane doesn't have a funky smell you know <laughs> the the, I don't know. But anyway, but yeah, there's not enough people like me to get it off the ground. It's funny because we should probably stop rattling on airlines. But, um, you know, so I'm based in Asia where like flying economy class on an Asian airline is like flying like above first class on a typical U.S. airline. Um, but it's I just, I just it's U.S. like has like Stockholm syndrome. Like there was like Business Insider, right? They always do like the oh, I flew on this airline and like everyone clicks on it five million times. Um, but I think Steve, Steve Kovach did one when he was on like Singapore air and he's like marveling at like every seat had like its own television. <laughs> it's like, Oh, first class. So I, for, I forgot how bad, no, in economy. And I'm like, first class on us air is literally just a bigger seat. They do give you a meal. They do give you a meal that you don't get back there, but it's so bad that, I mean, you're a, honestly, you're a fool if you eat it. I, I think, I mean, you're just asking to be made sick. It, it, I mean, and you get drinks, so I mean, you you know, it's a bigger seat, and you get you get alcoholic drinks. Um, That's it. Which one should not frown upon too too much, but um, no, but it, you know, it's 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 so much different than international airlines. Yeah, so it, you know, we we are we are massively. What's funny? So we are way off, right? So that 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 Samsung. Well, I don't know right? that we're way off, though. I do think it kind of explains the race to the bottom uh, in. You know, on a commodity platform like Windows, and I think that's where Android is heading. Well, you know? the, the weird thing with what makes it different, though, um, 
and, and the weird, well, maybe it's the same because the, the thing with an airline is because it is super heavily regulated, right? Like you, there's a certain like floor of service. Like even if you fly like Frontier or Spirit or whatever, like the really crap, you know, like the cheap ones are, like you can feel reasonably confident that they're going to get you there in one piece, right? Yeah. Like because they all have to pass the same FAA regulations. They all yeah. have to have the same maintenance, like, re, you know, regimes. And so because of that, like you, you, it's not like, you're flying and like, wow, this guy is like $300 cheaper, but they have a plane crash every other week. Right, right. right. Not, like it, it, everyone's everyone's at a certain level. Um, and what's happening with smartphones is you're getting actually a similar, a similar idea. Like a few years ago, even a couple years ago, the difference between a $200 smartphone and a $400 smartphone was, was huge. Um, now there really isn't that much of a difference at all. And by the way, that $200 smartphone is now a hundred dollar smartphone or $150 smartphone. And so like the, 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 the difference between the high and low end is shrinking. And what's funny is everyone uses this to say why Apple's doomed, but they're only doomed if you ignore the software, right? All those, and this actually, I think, I think the first time you've linked to me might have been this article. Like I said, well over a year ago that Samsung was in trouble. Because um, unlike Apple, there's nothing to make a Samsung phone different from a no-name phone. Yeah. Um, and and especially in China, where uh, in China, like there's there. Well, first off, there's a few things, a few more things that are different in China. Like one, there's just way more because that's where all the manufacturing happens. Like there's just way more phones there. There's way more companies making phones, the vast majority of which don't export at all. So there's tons and tons and tons of, of quote unquote brands in China, most of whom I've never heard of much less, much less anyone else. So one, there's just way more competition. Uh, and then two, uh, in China, most for the most, it, it's much more so the phone is separate from the, from the plan. So you 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 usually not always I mean and actually the iPhone has pushed more of a subsidization into the the system but especially traditionally it's always been very separate where you buy your your you buy your service from the carrier and you buy your device from a device seller like they're yeah. different transactions and so that that neuters Samsung's carrier advantage it doesn't really exist as much there um, and then you add on top of that. Samsung did have more of a prestigious brand in China. Like if you're going to buy, it'd be better to buy a $200 Samsung phone than a $200 Chinese phone because Samsung, you know, was a meaningful brand. And that's um, where you get into that massive spend that, that Samsung still has on, on marketing. Totally. Totally. But, I mean, but like Xiaomi's that. just destroyed that. Like that's mm -hmm. like Xiaomi is Xiaomi. What Xiaomi really does have a lot in common with Apple is like Xiaomi's founders are like rock stars, right? They are the right. Steve Jobs and, and uh, you know, and the the Craig Federighi's of of um, of China, and, and their phones actually do. I've never held one in my hand, so I can't speak to build quality. But you take a look at them, and they do to to my eyes instantly look better designed than Samsung and and most other brands. Yeah, and and the, and the, the quality the quality is decent. I'm the I've held both the high end and the low end. The low end was was wasn't the most previous one. It, it was a little like I thought it was a little flimsier, but it wasn't. It was a fully functional like. There's no problem in use this day to day. You can tell it's a you know a couple hundred bucks cheaper than its sibling. Um, but again, that's that's improving as well. Like those are way better than what was available at the price point previously, and. And so for Xiaomi, and then Xiaomi has like 
you know, so they have these rock stars and they, there's the whole Chinese like social network, you know, the, which we talked about last time, the WeChat and, and all these sort of things where they, where they actually sell. They sell completely online. So they don't have to pay any overhead to carriers. They pay nothing for marketing. They just basically sell everything through their brand and through their website. And so they can keep their costs super low. And then their whole business model is to basically sell at cost, right? They say they're going to make it up by selling by selling services, by selling, you know, app store and all that sort of stuff. And and Samsung is just getting walloped. Like Samsung can't compete with that. And that's why Apple is more threatened in China by Xiaomi as well, because Xiaomi isn't just cheap. They're they're cheap and they're they're a brand and they're like they're a statement. Like they're you're saying something by carrying a Xiaomi phone, and that has been Apple's selling point in China always. Like China, mm-hmm. yes, the software is important, but it's not. It's actually I think it's less. It's less of a differentiator in in China, especially because there's all there's all lots of crazy stuff you can do with Android, right? That that the China that Chinese value. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas Apple, the lockdown actually works against them a lot of ways. This is actually an area where like the the keyboards are going to help. Uh, that's I, I there's lots of alternate Chinese keyboards um, that I I know people that's been a a holdup for not wanting to go go with iOS. Um, but even beyond that, there's tons of stuff like the the whole idea of skinning stuff and having all these cutesy things and all this all this stuff on our phone that we in the West feels very very like weird like that. It's just different there like. You go to you go to like Yahoo China or or Alibaba in China or Baidu or like the pages are all busy and there's links everywhere and they're just like they hurt your eyes like it's just a very different aesthetic, right. um, and so and Xiaomi delivers all that and they let you customize let you do this all this store stuff yet they're also cool, um, and so that but all those advantages only exist in China, and so that's why Xiaomi is a big deal in China but I'm way more skeptical about them outside of China. Um, because it just doesn't translate as much. All right, let's hold this thought because we'll pick it right back up. I know where I want to go, but I want to thank our second sponsor, another longtime supporter of the show, our good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze is online backup for your Mac, unthrottled and unlimited. Uh, you download Backblaze, you get a free trial, risk-free, no credit card required. Just sign up. Just go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball. Download it. You have 30 days. See how it works completely. And after that, only after that, do they ask you for a credit card. And I guarantee you, you're probably going to sign up because it's great. Uh, They have over 100 petabytes of data backed up among all their users. Now, last week I said I don't even know how much that is. Uh, Our good friends at Backblaze have gotten touched. So one petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. They have 100 petabytes of data backed up. Uh, that's how much they have stored. They've just crossed the 6 billion file mark for how many files have been restored by users. In other words, users of Backblaze have restored 6 billion files that have been backed up by Backblaze. Lots of users, uh, great track record, great software, an iPad, an iPhone app, I mean, um, to access and share any of your files from anywhere. You can restore one file at a time. If it's just like, oh my God, I just need that one thing. I don't know where it is. It's not on my machine anymore, but I bet it Backblaze has it backed up. Uh, or all of your files, easily with the web restore. And 25% of all restores, though, are just one file. Uh, it's not just for computer disasters, although it's great peace of mind and a great service if you do run into a disaster. 
Um, founded by ex-Apple engineers, it runs natively on your Mac and on Mavericks. There's no add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. It's just five bucks a month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled backup. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball and just download it if you haven't already. So my thanks to them. So I think the irony, the irony of the whole Samsung Apple thing is that the, re, the, the, the consensus refrain against Apple, uh, I would say while, while like the stock was depressed after Tim Cook first took over, uh, is that they, it's unsustainable for the minority market share OS to, you know, they, 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 they can't sustain it against Android. It's inevitable that it's going to be all commoditized and the whole thing's going to collapse. Um, and Samsung is going to beat them. Samsung is more innovative than Apple. They can't. They can't beat Samsung. I think the irony is that it's really all those arguments really were, do apply, but they don't apply to Apple. They apply to Samsung. Yep. You know that the 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 knock against Apple for most of 2011, 2012, maybe even into twenty thirteen, really was the case against Samsung. That the that the differentiation that they had for a while was not sustainable. No, that's that's exactly it. I mean, I think like like I said, I think this is when we first connected. Was you know, I wrote a piece called Two Bears," like that. Th- basically, it's it's this point. It's, it's to like for some reason, and it's funny. Like, uh, I wrote another piece, Two Bears Revisited," where I drudged up like some old like PC reviews of like MacBooks, right? And in in every single one of them, they don't talk about the operating system. They talk about like <laughs> what ports it has, the screen quality, the keyboard quality, and it's right. like it, it. And analysts do the same thing, and it's it's just it's so weird, right? Yeah. It's like how can you how like I think the vast majority of the Apple's doom narrative comes from people that fundamentally don't grok the the software differentiation angle, right? Yeah. And they, and if you don't understand that. Then yes, Apple is doomed. They're selling very expensive gadgets when you can get a perfectly good gadget for a quarter of the price. Right, and it's um, it, it's almost impossible to overstate just how high the table stakes are to get into that. Oh, you know that uh, that you know so so clearly the biggest thing that's happened in tech. I mean, I mean, we spent most of the last seven years talking about one thing, which is the, the revolution that iOS sparked. And it's not all about iOS because Android followed, but it, it's changed the world. But it, it wasn't just that Apple in 2005 through 2007 was able to create iOS. It, that iOS entirely is based on work that started in 1988 with Next. Uh, with Next. And that it, in some sense, it was a continuous effort. Not that, that in 1988 or 1989 that Next had in mind something like the iPhone, but there's so much that is shared and that is built on, you know, and why, you know, for example, just, just the simple aspect of, and, you know, is something that came up once again, just every single year, just like it being the year of Linux. This is the year where Android gets 60 frames per second animation. Why does it, does the iPhone have better, less stuttery scrolling and animation than Android? Uh, it's not because of work that Apple did, not only because of work that Apple had did in 2006 through the present, it's because of work that, that Apple has done since 1988, what, Apple and Next. Well, and why, it's on the same point, uh, Windows Phone came out after Android, yet Windows Phone has always had better animation. Why? Exactly. Because right. Microsoft's been writing 
device drivers since and, the 80s, right? And and has always, to their credit, for all the knocks you can give against Windows, up until uh, Vista uh, had a you know had a tremendous reputation for it. at least the interface in Windows was snappy and responsive, right? Know? Especially like you know XP versus the early versions of Mac OS X. You know, Apple it wasn't. Apple felt Apple's interface felt slower because they were doing such so much more graphically. It was like a long play that got them to where they could do these things like the the you know stuff. But anyway, it following different paths and with different priorities. Microsoft and Apple both have decades yep. of work that that the that's resulted in the snappiness of the interfaces you see today, and so it's 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 just so hard to overstate how hard it would be for somebody like Tizen or like Samsung to get Tizen established as a a true peer to those platforms. Yeah, well, I mean, I think yeah, because I mean, it's easy to look at the the App Store and that's certainly a big part of it, but like I mean, if you think about but that, that's I, another part of the table stakes at this point though, because it wasn't in 2007 or 2008, right. but now it is. Well, wait, right? no, that that's my point, right? Cuz everyone everyone you can stop there and say that's reason enough that no one else is going to is going to break in. But if you look at iOS, like I, to me, there's like three. I mean, everything's Unix, right? But there's three kind of seminal proprietary things that happened that made iOS one, and one is Next back in the '80s, so that's where it started. Two was uh, the iTunes Store, mm-hmm. um, and then three was was the App Store, which I guess which I guess is part of that. But the, but like. The, what makes iOS what it is has been a decade long process, and and that and that's that's the thing, right? It's not just that Apple's differentiated. It's almost a little too simple to say Apple products are differentiated by software because it really is they're differentiated by the entire ecosystem, right. by everything that sits on top of it. So now, and we saw this with Palm in a lot of ways. Even if you came out with an operating system that was as as elegant and as easy to use uh, now that that is no longer enough. And there is nothing like there are very few things in business broadly, I think that are more challenging than building an ecosystem because there's so many players involved. Like there's so much out of your control. And like when I was at windows, I was working on the windows 8 app store and, you know, manage a few categories in the app store and trying to get, get people on board and you need, you need the users in place. You need the developers in place. You need the right. You need the right capabilities in the system. Like there's, it's this. It's like a speaking of watches, like this inner interlocking watch, right? But it's not like where you can put one piece in and add the next piece, and then they all work together. You have to not just put all the pieces in, but they have to all fit in at the same time immediately, <laughs> right? Like they have right. to just magically come together and then work. And without that. Um, it's you you're forced to like go to shortcuts where it's paying developers whether it's um you know trying to come up with something that's so unique that people will look over the the holes which you know i guess what amazon's trying to do um but it's 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 fiendishly hard and this is this is if apple is discounted on wall street and i think this is going away to to your point but it's it's on this is that people don't like Someone at Microsoft told me um, that uh, you know what Wall Street values is knowing that you can totally fuck it up and you'll still be in business, right? 
And so Microsoft can release Vista and they're still going to make tons of money. Um, you know, they can release Windows 8, they're still going to be making tons of money. Their stock is is higher now than it's been in years. Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, and this is this is one of the reasons why Amazon has always had such a strong stock is like people view them as being untouchable, right? Like their core business, no one's going, no one's no one's going to threaten it. And Apple has always been viewed as well, one bad break and the, and they're in trouble. And that's why the antenna gate was a big deal to to a lot of people is because there's this perception. Well, is this it? Is it? Did they finally? Did they finally mess up? And what I think they've missed. And what most analysts miss is actually Apple could release a dud and they would be okay because their ecosystem advantage is so significant and it's so hard to to catch up with that. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, that's a good point. And I do think that there is like and it's you know, circling back a couple of minutes, you know, um, segments ago. That I do think that it's finally starting to dawn on the, you know, investor world, you know, that Apple is, is not on the precipice, you know. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I still think you're going to see a lot of jackassery related to Apple. I still think that you're going to see. Let's just say they, you know, that they they ship something that you wear on your wrist and it costs three hundred dollars and they sell five million of them which I think is pretty reasonable for a new thing, you know. Let's just say, I don't know, who knows what the device does. It's a, a dingus that you wear on your wrist and it sells for $300 and they sell 5 million of them. And there's going to be people who say, multiply 5 million by $300 and say, well, that's nothing. That, that, that averages out to zero for Apple, therefore Apple is doomed because they needed to sell 50 million of them, which doesn't happen with new products, mm -hmm. right? You're still going to see that to some degree, but I think that um, most there's there's that it's going to be the fringe that that holds on to that rather than the the conventional wisdom. Yep. No, it, it, that's part of the what we talked about. Like there, there's kind of like this. Apple had to go through the valley a little bit as far as like perception goes, and and this is something where I mean I know I talked to I talked to some people who you know been long close watch of Apple and were very nervous about Cook meeting with like Carl Carl and and stuff like that and and really holding that up as a counter to what you know what Jobs would have done, right? Um, but just tell Carl Icahn to go fuck himself, right? Exactly, and but I think this this was. Um, and I, I was sympathetic to a degree. I've always been very sympathetic to Cook's position that, you know, the stock price matters a lot for employee retention. Um, it's kind of been my my position. But I think what you're seeing now is is that kind of effort paying off, right? Like Apple, um, I feel like Apple has gotten a lot more breathing room, um, exactly what you just said. And, and that actually is to, I think, Cook's credit uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah, I think it, it may be, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze them because, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst and I'm too distant, but that there's something, you know, to be said that among the ways that Cook is a great CEO for Apple right now in, way, in ways, ways that he is better than Steve Jobs is ego, right? That obviously, I mean, famously, I don't think it takes, an, a, you know, you don't have to be a psychologist to say that Steve Jobs had a very large ego, Um. You know, and I think it, while Apple was an upstart, it helped. You know, it helped to have a rock star at the helm of the company. And um, 
but doing something like going to dinner with Carl Icahn, that that shows that that not that Tim Cook doesn't have a large ego, but that he's willing to sublimate it. You know, he's willing to say, look, I you know, I I really doubt. I'll bet. I really doubt that he felt like going to dinner with Carl Icahn, <laughs> but he did it because it was good for the company. You know, I think there's a certain extraordinary diligence to 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 the way Cook is is doing that. Uh, a humility, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's a better word. That there's a humility uh, to Tim Cook, um, you know, whether that's innate, whether that's partly his southern upbringing, I don't know. But it's you know, one thing you nobody would say about Steve Jobs is that he was humble. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, the, the, it's one of those things where it's super easy to like look back on someone, right? And you only see the positive sides. But if if Steve Jobs acted like Steve Jobs does, well, Apple is the most valuable company in the world, like. You would like to think that everything is logical and like no one like it's just a lot easier to see them getting themselves in trouble, whether it be with the government, whether it be with like with other people, like um, you know, the, whether it be the app store sort of stuff. I mean, it, I don't know what it would be, but that kind of imperiousness um, right. wears much better. To your point, when you're when you're the underdog as opposed to when you're the eight hundred pound gorilla, and um, you know when I was when I this was something that was talked about a lot. You know, I was there at, you know, the university was like, like, we have to change, like, by virtue of being huge, we have changed. And we can either accept that and then try to figure out how to preserve what makes Apple, Apple. Um, Or we can continue as we are, but but that's actually a worse place to be because we're kind of being blind about the reality, which is the fact that we're this massive company now. And, and, we can't, it can never be the way it was just because things have changed. The world has changed. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that exact same thinking is what I wrote about last month with the, the only Apple piece that I, I killed myself knocking out and, and the, about the way that, you know, that I, I seem, it seems very clear to me that Tim Cook has, has brought about in the same way that the operations manufacturing has always been very, very, a well-oiled, uh, you know, like you said, a multi-part watch that all works together, that he's bringing that sort of efficiency to Apple's internals in Cupertino with divisions working together across, you know, that that things like just a perfect example, the way that this extension system is coming to Yosemite and iOS 8 at the same time, because they're working together. I, at WWDC, I spoke to some of the engineers, um, you know, and that did, Apple just was not set up that way. Those were silos previously and it would have been you know they even called it the one time back to the mac it's like okay here's a bunch of stuff where ios got ahead of the mac uh it's already shipped it shipped last year you know in last year's version of ios now we're bringing it to the mac um apple isn't working like that now they're developing these things together you know and some of them are things that have to be done together like um Oh, I keep forgetting the name of the feature, but you know, hey, there's a web page in front of me in Safari on my Mac, and I want to fling it over to my phone. Continuity, continuity. Well, that continuity is the 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 parent name for all of these features, but there's a oh, specific okay. name for handoff, right? Oh, right? Yep. Handoff is the is continuity is like the umbrella name for all of the features that are like this. Um, like answering a phone call on your Mac is part of continuity too. Um, but they're all, you know, that it's, you know, and to me, it's a realization that it's not just about Tim Cook having a different personality than Steve Jobs. 
I think it's about Apple being big enough that they can do things like this. Like, it's not that, let's say, Apple circa 2003 or 2004 could have been operating like that or should have been operating like that under Steve Jobs and that the different, you know, Steve Jobs' mercurial nature kept them from doing it. They weren't big enough to do it yet. And they weren't, you know, they needed to be more focused. I think it was the right, I think it was the right strategy. But they've, you know, they've crossed a certain chasm in terms of size where if they didn't embrace a more collaborative culture, they were missing an enormous opportunity, you know, that they were leaving an enormous amount of, of wasted potential on the floor because they could be doing so much more in, in the same amount of time with a more collaborative culture than they would otherwise. So here's, here's the question, though. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I wrote, I, I wrote a similar thing, but it's something that um, after your piece um, my, on, my, on my podcast, Exponent, with, with James Allworth, we talked about this, is like, yeah, it's, it's what's so fascinating, and um, you talked about Apple growing up, um, and I talked about them, you know, kind of forgetting like the 1997 mindset, you know, that was kind of holding them, holding them back. And what's, what's so striking about this is the language that we are using. Um, and I literally went back and looked up articles and profiles was the exact same language that was used for a company like Microsoft in the early 2000s. Like, oh, they've grown up, like they're going to stop being, you know, bullies that you know, they're going to be more collaborative. And and yes, again, I'm not saying Apple's Microsoft at all. Um, there's lots of important differences, but it it you you it it is worth thinking of. I, I, I'm just curious what you think, right? Steve Jobs said, you know, stay hungry, stay foolish. But we're talking about them kind of growing up and and being a little less foolish. I mean, do you worry at all um, that maybe there might be something that gets lost in this? Oh, definitely. I uh, I mean, worry is the wrong word, but, uh, you know, I definitely file it under things to keep an eye on Um, because I think it's uncharted territory. I don't think that they're following Microsoft's footsteps. I, you know, and and some people have – if there was any criticism of my only Apple piece, it was along the lines of how is this different from what, you know, Steve Ballmer taking over from Bill Gates – you know, and and the you know first couple of well, actually the whole time he did lead Microsoft to significantly higher revenue and profits on a consistent basis, mm-hmm. while driving the you know a ship that with the product categories that were heading over a cliff, um, strategically by being a little bit more conservative and you know focusing on what we already have rather than new stuff. Well, I, might- I don't, but the, I think that's not, not true though because Microsoft did know that mobile was next. And so, yeah, but they didn't want to disrupt themselves, and they didn't want to do mobile in a way that might decrease sales of Windows PCs, right? I, I think that's the fundamental difference, and that's to me is like the thing that I don't worry about is I don't think if Tim Cook, if somebody came to Tim Cook with an idea that it, it, I don't know what it would be, but clearly the the, the sacred cow at, at Apple financially is the iPhone. It's you know it's I think it's over half of profits and half of revenue. Even though the iPad is still growing and is huge and the Mac is doing very well, the iPhone is the thing. If they came up with something that would make people less likely to buy iPhones, I don't know what it would be. But if let's just say a watch that is so it doesn't it's not a something that you Bluetooth tether to your phone, it's just a watch and it would make people not buy iPhones and it only costs three hundred dollars. 
but it's so awesome that it would genuinely drive a rational person to think, I don't even need an iPhone anymore. I don't think Tim Cook would hesitate to do that, to go ahead with it. Because if somebody could do it, it might as, you know, that, that logic of being able to, to, you know, rather disrupting yourself than having somebody else disrupt you, it holds true. I think he has the common sense to think, well, you know, that's where it's going. You know, I don't think he would hesitate to, to chase that and pursue that. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the best the best thing in support of that is probably the iPad, which, um, you know, is yeah. cheaper than a Mac and, and does yeah. cannibalize the Mac. I, I do think that, you know. And I don't think they care. Right. And it sells for a significantly lower average selling price than even, you know, the cheapest MacBook Air, let alone the average selling price of, of a regular MacBook. Right. You know, it's probably half the price, at least, of you know average selling price, and I don't think Apple regrets it one bit. Yeah, know? well, they've increased increased volume, right? Um, right. I, I think the, the the only thing the only the only like hesitation I have is people always point to like, oh, the the iPhone replaced the iPod. Well, the problem is they're making more money on iPhones than they were on, like on one iPhone than they do on one yeah. iPod. So it's not a great example. That's why I like the right. iPad one, but it's it, I mean, it is interesting. I think I I do. I, th- I the other reason I think that Apple's not Microsoft is, um, you know, my, Microsoft's strengths and advantages were not in the product, right? I mean, they they yes. Microsoft has always been a marketing company. Where by marketing I mean not advertising, but they've they've always done very a very good job of understanding their customers' needs and then building exactly what what they want, right? Yeah, and. That's why they have all the backwards compatibility stuff and all the like, all multiple, all the driver issues and stuff. It, all that is because it's everything they do has been. They've really have gone all bent over backwards to meet people's needs, right? Um, but that didn't doesn't work so well when it comes to consumer products where you can't ask every consumer what they want. You have to build like the right profit, the right product, and make them want it. Yeah, um, I, I've always said that it, it, one of the things I think is underestimated is the importance of the exact order of your priorities. Like yeah. if you, even if you only care as an institution or even a person about three things, it really makes a difference which one's number one and which one's number two. Because there like will if, always come a decision where you have to choose. Right. Like all I really care about in in life is, you know, or I don't know, not to say personally, but let's say, you know, Apple, that I, I still think that their number one priority is creating great products and, and great experiences for the users. And maybe number two is doing it at a profit because the profits sustain everything. And, you know, but it makes a huge difference that one is in front of two and that all sorts of things fall out from that, especially in the long run. It's going to be interesting to see the um, – Because it's not that Microsoft doesn't care about experience. I just don't think that they place it quite as high in the priority list institutionally as Apple. And then there's – in the long run, there's been profound differences because of that. Well, and there's different different kinds of experiences, right? To satisfy a a business's needs, um, you you often prioritize things other than like the the end user experience of actually using the product, right? It's a – because the buyer is different than the user. And so you prioritize what the buyer values. Um, and yeah, it, it, and I think that's the real kind of big difference between the consumer market and the, and, and the business market is, is the end user is the, is the buyer. Yeah. And that, yeah, that makes Apple's strategy much more 
much better. Apple's priorities a much better match for the consumer market. Um, Here's another example. I'll give you an example that I think is very clear, and that this the, the this month's Android Wear um, watches uh, show Google and OEMs like LG and Samsung place a much higher well maybe not much it's just a different order but they place a higher priority on being first to market than apple does no doubt in my mind and it's watches to me are proof of it that they're clearly rushed they're clunky there's a lot if you read the reviews there's a lot of things that just are half-baked um you know joanna stern had a my favorite review of them in uh the wall street journal i guess it was last week but um Great review, but right now notifications are all or nothing. You either say all of your notifications from your phone go to your watch, or none of them do, at least on an app by app basis. So it's like you either have, if you want notifications for incoming email on your phone, then every time you get an email, your wrist is going to buzz, which is maddening, at least for some people yeah. like Joanna, and it is for me because I've tried it with the Pebble. Um, but you might want something like, look, just these two people, my wife and my boss. You know, when they email me, I want or or like in Apple terms, the VIP list, right? If my it, just if there's nothing like that, and of course it's going to come eventually. But I mean, that just seems like a I mean, why would you buy that? And then an even better example, the Moto 360, which is to me, it's the most controversial product I can remember in in years because I it, so many people on the Android side are saying that now here's a beautiful thing. And it's like, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> it is not a beautiful thing. It's, it is better looking than the other two clunkers so far from LG and Samsung, that's for sure. But it is not a beautiful thing. It, and, and the stupid bar at the bottom of, of the screen. Oh, you know, it's it, awful. It's awful. Apple wouldn't ship that in a million years. And the only reason Motorola is shipping it is because it's rushed to market. Everything's you know? relative, right? You, right. Yeah, it looks and, great compared to the LG, but uh, right. compared but it, to it, my watch, it's... Right. And clearly, Motorola and the, the designers and the team that built that Moto 360 place a higher priority on design than than the, the idiots at LG and, and Samsung who made their watches. Um and even if they if they value design as much as Apple, they also have this higher priority of wanting to ship it as soon as possible. And clearly, I guess, in anticipation of Apple coming out with something, shipping it before Apple does. And so they were willing to compromise and ship this thing with a black bar at the bottom of the circle, which is ridiculous. So, so here's here's what's interesting is um, you know because the, the counter would be oh that's okay we're going to iterate we want to learn from the market. Um, but in the meantime, so, they're charging people $225 for these things. Well, it's not just that, though, because think about it. If you if you're actually – you realize that you only want notifications for one to two people, um, do you then need a screen? Well, that's a good question. Let's come back to that. Let me thank our third sponsor, and then we'll, we'll do one more segment on the show, and we'll start with, with that, with the watches. Um, I want to thank another longtime friend of the show our good friends at Igloo, the intranet you'll actually like. Um, I was listening to uh, ATP podcast uh, this week, and uh, I'm just going to steal the line from Marco, which is that it's always a good, if, if there's ever anything in your life that's annoying, it's a great idea for new products in general. If you can find something where all of your options are annoying and you can think of a way to build a version that's not annoying and doesn't suck, that's generally a good idea. Well, that's what Igloo has done with intranets. Intranets, suck. Uh, so Igloo has attacked the problem and built an intranet product that doesn't suck. 
They have a new update that's coming soon. We've talked about it on the show before. It's called Unicorn, and it has a ton of new features. But the best part of it is integrated task management that will change the way you stay on track with work. Igloo tasks can be assigned in different ways depending on the work you're doing. One of the coolest ways to use tasks is creating them directly on your content. Why do you need this? Well, you're requesting updates on a graphic or a text correction on a Word document. You can create these tasks right on your content so your team can stay up to date with what has to be done next to update the graphic or edit the text. Uh, when you're viewing content, even if it's a blog entry, an event, a forum topic, inside your igloo, uh, these tasks are all right there, informing everyone of all the tasks that have been completed and what needs additional work. You can assign tasks to yourself, to teammates, you can comment on the tasks, and you can keep all the changes in one place. Um, huge feature. I think this is its obviously turned Igloo into more than just an internet. It's more of a project management platform for your small teams. Um, really great stuff. It's a free update for all Igloo customers. It's coming this summer. You can learn more about it. Here's where you go. igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Um, they've got all sorts of great stuff too. I, t I always throw this out there. It's free for up to 10 people. Not free for like a month, just free period for up to 10 people. Um, no obligation. So if you have a team of people working together, uh, go check them out. igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Uh, that a great point. I I think bottom line is I I think uh, you you were saying about do you need if you only want notifications for one or two people do you need a screen on your wrist I to me the answer is no well, I don't it, think so well just to before we actually get into that and I'd actually love your take because as we as we've established uh, back and forth your product sense is much better than mine um, but uh, what's interesting though is about these guys rushing to market is they can say that. Oh, we're just iterating. But now they're locked into this paradigm, right? If it turns out that, uh, you know, the best sort of secondary device needs only to be screenless, for example, like now they're like, now, now they're kind of like, it's like they've sailed up a dead end. And not, now it's not just that they, they need to iterate, they actually need to backtrack and like re, you know, they actually put themselves more behind than they might have been otherwise. Um, so that, that, that's what would make something like that particularly interesting if they actually were, were pursuing the wrong paradigm to start out with. I'm not saying I, they are. It's just I don't know, but I can't help but think that they are. And, you know, and Joanna Stern's review just, it went, just explicitly called it, you know, what I think it looks like is they've taken modern smartphones and shrunk them to two inches and put them on a wristband, and now they go on your wrist. And we saw that worked with mobile, right? That's what Microsoft did, taking it taking this conversation full circle they try they literally had a start button on, <laughs> that's true in the lower phone. left no. lower left right uh and uh i think they might have had it on the upper left just to switch it up a little oh, bit oh maybe but, they um, did yeah but uh, it was the same thing though you, you, you tap the start button and get a start menu and and go from there right and so like i i i really do think they're like their mobile shortcomings were first and foremost because they just made a bad product and they made a bad product because they couldn't break out of desktop thinking. And to me, this is by far the biggest criticism of Android Wear. I have a few criticisms, but the biggest one is it's it's Windows Mobile 2.0. It's taking a smartphone and cramming mm -hmm. it onto your wrist. And I, I, anytime you're shifting a paradigm or shifting a device, like I think we tech 
history isn't isn't that old, but I think we can say pretty confidently that you have to change everything. And they haven't done that. And um, yeah, I'm for that reason alone, plus some other reasons, um, I'm very skeptical. You know, and I've gotten some emails, and I love them. I do. I, and I know that my audience, that, that there's a just human nature is such that, and modern media is such that whether it's, you know, like national politics or whether it's tech, that people tend to, they enjoy reading the, the things that come from the people who already think the way they think. But I do, I love the people who are like big Android fans who read Daring Fireball. Um, I, because I, their feedback to me, I, I, they seldom change my mind, but I always consider it. And it's, you know, uh, to me, it's a great perspective. And I've already gotten some emails from people, you know, who were at IO and have, you know, um, one of these wear watches already. And they say that they like it, you know, I, I, I've, I've probably gotten more e- such emails than I've ever gotten from people who tell me that glass is actually good. <laughs> um, well, you should, while you're talking about relativity and setting little bars. Uh, and basically, you know, as saying, you know what? I think it's great. I love having my notifications. People on love Windows Mobile. Right. Yeah. I, I just don't think it's, I, I don't dispute that there are some number of people who do like getting their notifications on their wrist and just looking at it. And, my big thing with the Pebble that I just thought was the deal breaker was that, okay, I tried wearing the Pebble, and and God bless them, I love their their you know their gumption, but you get a notification, and if it was something you had to act on, there you had to take your phone out, right? So it's you know the one time I was wearing a Pebble, at one time I I, I wore it for a couple of weeks, that it was actually useful as I was driving my car. And uh, I was going to pick up my son at school, and I got a text from my wife. And I forget what it was said, but it was something I, it was actually useful for me to get the text, but I needed to text her back. So I had to, I, and I do this. I, I'm literally, I'm like a fanatic about it. I will not use my phone while I'm driving a car. I had to like pull over and, you know, park the car for a second and, and then text her. It wasn't that much better than just feeling the phone vibrate and, you know, waiting until I got to the school and take the phone out and see the text, you know. It wasn't an emergency. It was not an emergency thing. It was just – but I had to write her back. The thing that that the wear has is they have the talk so that if you do get a text and your hands are free, you can you can speak your reply to the thing. Mm-hmm. So there is that and that's a huge step over Pebble. But to me – it's it is not an inconvenience to me. It's never felt like a burden to me to take my phone out when I feel a, a buzz. Well, I mean, a chirp. I, I think uh, they've solved a problem that I don't think many people have, and I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years, all this time that watches have been rumored as the next area of innovation in text. I can't even count the number of emails and tweets I've gotten from people who say, uh, "I used to wear a watch, wore a watch when I was in college, whatever." Uh, uh, haven't worn a watch since I started carrying a cell phone. I want to know the time. I just take my phone out. So and- what's interesting is is I do think where it, it makes a big difference actually is for women, um, especially if they carry their phone in their bags. Like my, I mean, just that's a, a very good point. Right, um, that it's it's harder to find a, a phone in a bag than it is to find a phone in your front pocket. Yep, and, and actually in Asia, uh, most men carry bags as well. Like that's actually another reason why the bigger phones are are a thing. <laughs> and so we've they've made these watches that are so appealing to women. <laughs> no, but that's the point. Is like so the, actually probably the best market is women, and these are yeah. <laughs> the the video like our list, the listeners have to watch the Joanna Stern video right like I'll put it in the show notes. yeah don't get we won't give it away just it, it's it's 
it's it's really great. Yeah, uh, which addresses that point specifically. Right. But anyway, the one thing that watches have been best at ever since they were invented is telling time. That's the one thing everybody I think would agree is the one thing that you know it's the definition of a watch. Everything else, every other complication on a watch is is in a, like a secondary feature. Primary purpose is to find out what time it is. Uh, and I think for most people, the phone has proven to be a good enough solution. And that, the, you know, I can't tell you how many people have told me that. That the one thing watches specialize in, people are like, ah, I always have my cell phone in my pocket. I don't wear a watch anymore. That's good. That's let, good alone, let alone everything else, like people who might be texting you pictures and longer texts and, you know... Um, even on screenshots, you know, it, I don't know. There's just so many, so many bizarre compromises in the design of this where, and the Pebble's the same way, where it shows so few characters because, you know, it's a tiny little, you know, 1.6 inch display and you can't, just can't show it. Even like a text message is hard to fit on at once. Yeah. No, th- I think, yeah, this is like, there's one thing watches are better at and even then people aren't willing to wear them. Right. So why would they wear them for something that it's worse at? And it's, you know, and, and again, repeating myself, everybody's made this point, but it's also very decidedly um, a generational thing yep. where, you know, the younger you are, the less like you in, and the less like you, you are to have ever worn a watch. And therefore, why would I do that? Why would I buy a thing that just tells me the time? I always know the time I've got my phone with me. So I, I, I increasingly feel, um, again, I don't have a great product sense, but just kind of thinking through this stuff through is... Um, one, I, I, I think there's going to be a range. I don't think there is a AI watch or an right. watch. Um, yeah, there's going to the, be a whole bunch of devices. There might be rings. There might be watches. There might be clips. There might be like it literally might be like ten different things. And actually, um, and two, I think most of them won't have screens. Maybe there will be one or two that do, but um, I don't know. That that's going to take. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, especially screens as we know them, which are enormous energy hogs, and which is the reason why your gear watch has to, or, or Android Wear watch has to be charged daily. Um, and I know, I think I said this last week when Whiskus was on the show, but I just think people are, I think so many tech people are vastly, vastly overestimating what an enormous burden is to carry even a single device that needs charging daily. And we've all made this decision. We all have decided that having these, you know, modern cell phones is important enough um, to do it, but it's an enormous burden. And every time you go to the airport and you see people sitting, grown men in suits sitting on the floor so they can be near an electrical (laughs) socket, that's for one device, right? Asking people to have a second device that you need to charge on a daily basis and one which requires a proprietary weirdo charger thing that you have to somehow carry around with you is... uh, I'm, again, I'm not saying it, it's impossible. You know, clearly the the cell phone river. If 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 it's possible to get everybody to carry one device that needs charging daily, um, it's possible to make them have two. But don't underestimate just how crazy it is that we've convinced everybody to carry even one device that needs charging. Yeah, daily. I, I don't think so. I mean, because you just you just said it exactly right. If that one device can do what that other device does, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It show notifications, let you reply to them. You but know. Uh, no, I, I, like we are convincing me even more. Like I, I really don't think there's going to be a screen because, right. like, uh, you know, there's a you think about a few ways. Like, well, one, just imagine the showmanship, right? It's going to be like the whole like the iPhone has no buttons, while the iWatch has yeah. no screen. Right. Um, but I think you have to think about it. Like, you think back to the iPod. 
Like what what made the iPod so transformative? It was that it removed features from music players, right? There were music players on the on the market, but they had all these fiddly things to to change controls. I and mean, yes, part of it was the thousand songs in the pocket and the and the and the design, but a big part of it was iTunes. It was that all this complex management stuff was removed from the device and put on a much more suitable device. Yeah. And y- and they using it using it felt like going downhill, not uphill. Right, exactly. Like and all it did was 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 like what only it could do, which was play music on the go. And actually managing playlists and all that sort of stuff you did you did on your computer. And I I and over time that changed. Like now my my iPhone has never been connected to my computer, right? But that took like a de- over a decade, right? I think I think watches or these wearables are going to start the same way. Like they their function will be something that only they can do that yeah. a watch cannot do. And it's probably someone's going to be the sensor stuff. Someone's going to be. I think th- I do think there will be a notification thing, but it will be the like only your favorites. Like you can do favorites on your phone. Like those will be the only ones. Um, and people will bitch and moan about how limited it is. But but. And then all the other stuff will be on the phone. There won't be, I don't think there will be, there will be minimal, if any, duplication between what one does and what the other does. And on the flip side, I think Apple is going to try to make these not tech devices that look good, but fashion accessories that happen to have electronic functions. Right. You've got to work backwards. And it's a, you know, I'll paraphrase it, but it's a Steve Jobs quote that you've got to work backwards from the experience, what it is you want to do to the technology and not the other way around. And to me, these Android Wear devices are exactly the opposite. It's starting with, and and Google even said this explicitly on stage at IO, it's now possible to build a smartphone-like device that fits on your wrist. Right. And it's true that that wasn't possible before, that it's, it's, you know, great increases in miniaturization, great increases in, you know, you know, just the ability to power to power these little tiny screens, even for a day, does require new technology. And Bluetooth LTE is new technology, so that you can actually maintain a tethered connection, even if you know one day's battery life is crappy. I think for a, a watch, but it says something that you can keep a Bluetooth, and and all the reviews indicate that you do get a full day out of the thing. That's new technology, but it's all working backwards from we can do this, so let's do it, and here it is, instead of starting with what would actually be a good experience for a thing you wear on your on your wrist and what would look good. No, exactly. Um, I do. I, I I have one more question for you. Um, okay. That I'm actually curious your take on. So, my, that's my. We just nailed my big criticism of Android Wear and where I'm. I don't think like I I think it's 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 a misstep. I think it's Windows Mobile. Um, my other question is is what you think about Google now? I you know I I think it's I wrote just a little thing about it um, when I linked to Joanna Stern's review today um, that I do think that's where there's the most potential in. Um, Android or Google-based wearables is that Google, to me, I think has best-of-breed speech understanding. Speaking, oh to yeah, the it's, it's amazing. It works every single time. Yeah, and I think Siri has gotten better. I really do. I use it all the time walking walking around the city while texting. I'll do use the speech and and I, I Siri is the umbrella term, not Siri the intelligent agent, but Siri the hit the microphone next to the spacebar to dictate a text. Um, 
it's gotten better. It's gotten more accurate, and it has gotten the latencies improved, and it works better over cellular. But it still is not as good as Google's, and that's because I think Google's is isn't standing still on that either, right? Best of breed. Google is best best of breed for speaking to a device and understanding it quickly. Uh, and I think there's a lot of potential there for wearables. Um, but the, my problem is I don't buy into the let Google know everything about me. I don't use Google Calendar. I don't want Google. I don't want Google knowing my location. I'm I'm genuinely creeped out by all of that. Well, that. well, what if you weren't creeped out though? Like, do you think that's something that you would find useful? I mean, the reason the reason I ask is is to me, um, I feel this is a there's a really interesting uh, interview with. Um, uh, Vinod Kosla of Kosla Ventures and and Larry Page and Sergey Brin uh, earlier this week and and they talk about this a bit um, and like I, I feel there's just a fundamentally different view of computing um, between Google and Apple and it really is personified right now more than anything by Siri versus Google Now. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I think I know where you're going with that. And part of it is I've been reading these reviews of the, the Wear devices, and a lot of what you see on them isn't what you've asked for. It's what Google thinks you want to see. Right. And like like Google- you, don't, you don't say, show me my flight. It, 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 you've put your flight in your calendar, and at a certain point, Google says, hey, you've got a, you've got a 1 p.m. flight, and it's 1030 in the morning, and it's going to take you at least 45 minutes to get there. And, and it, it comes up, you didn't ask for it, it does it. And, and I've seen a couple of reviews mention weather is like that. Like you'll get like a weather thing and once you dismiss it, you can't make it come back. There's no way to say, show me that weather card I just dismissed. They, they show you the weather when they think you know, want to know about the weather. And that, I think I would find that maddening. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, one thing that was interesting, that in, no, exactly. It, it's it's they, their view is anticipating your needs and like taking care of them for you. And it's it really is a um, uh, you know Larry Page said like that's why the I'm feeling lucky button was there because I'm feeling lucky is what Google that's Google's ideal vision of Google search is that actually everyone always can hit I feel lucky because it will always serve exactly the right result and but their vision now is even past that it's like you don't even have to type something in the box like they will know what you want and and give it to you and it's like it really is um, uh, you know Benedict Evans. Uh, we mentioned earlier, posted a tweet during Google I.O. of saying Google, he posted a picture of the scene from um, uh, Wally where the fat people, you know, everyone's fat and sitting in chairs and all their needs yep. are being addressed. He's like, oh, Google and Apple are racing here. And and I, I wrote in a piece, I'm like, I actually, I, I think Google is going there, but I f- think Apple is very explicitly not going there. Um, and it goes back to, you know, Steve Jobs saying the computer is a bicycle, right? A, a bicycle is still subject to a human's direction and a human's propulsion. It just, it just enhances that. Um, it's not, it's not a self-driving car, like taking you where you want to go. And, uh, and you see that with Siri, Siri doesn't anticipate your needs. It only responds to questions. And I don't think that's a technical limitation i think it's a philosophical one and and to me i think that's something that you know is very is really a question of who's going to own the future because if if google's right they will own the future because they're so far ahead of everyone um but if 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 it's if computers stay a tool then apple and their their user their user experience and all that sort of stuff um, will continue to differentiate them. Yeah, maybe it's not either or either. You know, maybe it's, you know, 
it's a bifurcation and it, you know, one, one group of, depending on your personality is drawn to one side and one's drawn to another. And it comes back to, I think what, what, um, Benedict Evans had written this week about that, that ever since 2007, iOS and Android have been converging and that they've been kind of picking up the same feet, you know, Google picked up dra drag from the top for notifications first, and then Android, uh, Apple picked it up, and Android picked up a whole bunch of features from I that iOS. It was way ahead of them on you know as the years went on, but then eventually they picked up all. Both of them got all the low hanging fruit, and with this year's iOS eight and Android L announcements, now you're seeing them go in different directions. And I think you're you're talking about the same sort of thing. I think mm -hmm. is you know, and I you know maybe they're both sustainable. Maybe it's not you know, but that they appeal to very different people. I don't know. I think one of the most telling things I've I've read about Android Wear, I haven't written about it yet, but it was Ron Amadeo's um, review in Ars Technica of Android Wear, just the software, which when I first started reading it, I thought I expected to roll my eyes because I thought it was a weird idea to review the software in the abstract as opposed to the actual experience of the watches, it, it, it on the actual devices. Um, but, you know, to their credit, ours did have reviews of the watches. But And Ron's review of just Android Wear was interesting because it just sort of focused on the philosophy of it. And, he, you know, it emphasized these things that a lot of what you see on it is what Google thinks you want to see. And that, you know, and he mentioned specifically with the weather that it was frustrating that you couldn't just bring it back up. Right. And that to me would be maddening, but I think it's also very telling about the 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 philosophy behind it. Yeah, no, I mean, and it, I think you're exactly right that it is. Uh, yeah, phil philosophical difference is is that that exactly. And I saw the interview. I didn't read the whole thing, but I saw the interview with um, where was that? Did I, I should probably link that up too? The, the interview with Sergey and yeah, I think uh, that the gist of it was that he was saying that eventually the algorithms are going to be smarter than us. Right. I mean, it, it really, it's interesting too. And I think this is, um, this is part of the thing why Google, you know, is, tends to have such a hold on uh, kind of geeks in general is like, it's always kind of been, been a very geeky domain. The, you know, like geeks aren't afraid of AI. They're not afraid of robots, right? Like they're, yeah. they're intrigued by them. They're kind of drawn to them like moths to a flame. Right. And Google has always been very much in that sort of vibe. Um, and but what's really interesting and, and is going to be it's you see it starting to play out now to play out even more is as you know tech has kind of spent the last 20, thirty years eating itself right we 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 disrupt each other and all that sort of stuff but now as it's touching every part of society you're getting like people who don't think about this who who really do see computers as tools right they they help them get stuff done. Um, now they're encountering this. They're encountering stuff like Facebook and, and, and the testing and all that, which to most geeks, it's A-B testing. But to someone else, it's like, what the hell is going on here, right? And I think you're going to – it's going to be really interesting to see as this kind of collision happens with society as a whole and they start waking up to like – to this kind of like what what is almost we're used to. Um, I suspect that actually that, that – I, I obviously think it's going to play out more in the – um, computers as tools. I think that's how most people view them and want them to operate. Um, but maybe Google's right, and people do want, you know, personal assistance. Right, and that algorithms can deliver a satisfying, superior, 
Yeah, or superior, right? I mean, that's the whole. I mean, it's not even new. It's not. It's certainly not a new direction for Google. It's it's new terrain in the same direction. You know, like Google News. That's the whole point behind Google News is that you could, which you know, I don't think is a major project product for them anymore. But the basic idea behind it that Google could algorithmically predict the most important news and the news, I guess, personalized that you know would be most appealing to you, yep. as opposed to the editors of the New York Times or, uh, you know, The Verge or for technology or whatever. What's, can... what's so interesting, though, is is Google's big product still is today is search. And search is actually much more, if we're going to call this divide, like an Apple-Google divide, it's much more on the Apple side of things. Like, you, it's, it's directed. You go there and you put in a word and you click the button or you press, right. you press and enter. And it's the one Google product that Steve Jobs has adamantly said is a great product exactly and it, it's right. and it's funny because what google is pushing for is is actually different than what their big successful product is yeah yeah that's a great point i agree with that um briefly because i don't want to go past the two hour mark but there, well, well, one last thing i wanted to speak to you about while i had you and i'd i'd, I'd loathe it if i didn't is that just yesterday it broke that uh, that apple has hired um, yeah, Tag Heuer, the sales yeah, director. Yeah, sales director, a sales executive from Tag Heuer, a, a high-end luxury watch brand, uh, which is part of – it's not like an independent brand. It's part of – LVMH. Um, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton. What's the MH stand for? Uh, I always get the M wrong because H is Hennessy. It's a uh, – I think it's like the champagne brand or something, isn't it? Well, it's a f- – I get this wrong every mm. single time. Oh, I know this. All right. So, But anyway, French conglomerate that owns Louis Vuitton – Hennessy, um, you know, a, a true conglomerate because it's part of their M- stuff. Moet. Is, Mo- Moet, M-O-E-T yeah. with a little with umlaut on it. Right. So, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that any company that owns vers- ver- both Louis Vuitton and Champagne and, and uh, Cognac Fun. brand uh, is a conglomerate. But obviously there's a certain, uh, you know, it's luxury. It's quality. It's, you know, branding. Uh, they've hired a sales executive from from Tagure. And that joins uh, Paul Denive, who came from Yves St. Lawrence, and most famously, Angela Arntz. Uh, Burberry. Uh, Burberry. Uh, and I wrote about this and, and said that I would include Jimmy Yovine and Dr. Dre in that group. And and I that's all I said last night. And I got a lot of stuff that like, ah, oh, Beats is in a luxury brand. And I realized luxury is the wrong word. And this is, this is the cl- the clarifying thing I added today is that I I include Eovine and Dr. Dre because I don't think Beats is a luxury brand, but I don't think luxury is the right word to explain these hires. It's about some kind of like circling around taste, style, branding. Yeah, see, uh, Beats is a luxury brand though. It's a it's a luxury brand the same way Apple is a luxury brand. Right. Well, and then I even said, I, I, here's where I think when people say I'm worried about this, I'm worried about the direction Apple's going. Is think about this: the iPhone is nothing like Virtu, the where you buy like a six thousand dollar right phone, Symbian phone and it's got leather and and jewels on it. Uh, and Beats isn't like Virtu either, right? Because I never see people walking down the street with Virtu phones, but every single day in Philadelphia, I see people wearing, especially, you know, it's certainly come to my attention since Apple bought them. I see them every day. I see people wearing Beats every single day in Philadelphia. And Virtu's not like that. It's, it's, Beats is like an Apple luxury brand where it's accessible luxury. Right. And depending on your taste in music, you know, it's, it's as good of 
I don't, people are going to crucify me for this. It's as good a performance you can get, right? You have right. people like that sound. I right. Know, I know it's not technically accurate. Right. It's, you know, it's, you know. But the point uh, is you're not, you're not, you're, most people don't feel like they're sacrificing. Like to right. use a virtue, you're sacrificing, right? You're right. not using an, an iPhone right. or an Android. Right, exactly. Oh, they make right. Androids now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And don't you think, I, there's some, you know, and quality, you know, in a certain sense. I've heard, you know, somebody told me, uh, for example, this is, and this is the sort of thing, I don't know a lot about headphones. I really didn't know a lot about Beats before they Apple bought them. But one guy wrote me and said, you know why I buy Beats headphones? They have an amazing return policy. Uh, and they'll take care of you. Like he said, I bought a pair of Beats, cost me 300 bucks, and like nine months later, they broke. And I took them back, and they just took them and gave me a new pair. No questions asked. And he goes, That's, it's, it can't be beat. And you don't get that sort of thing from other companies. Yeah, I mean, making I, people happy and building a relationship. I don't. I don't know. I don't know a ton of, uh, about you know beats specifically, but what, what, what strikes me about these. Um, about yeah, I'm more interested not in your take on beats, but on the just on the the, the hiring of you know that it, one or two could be an outlier, but it seems to be a trend. Yeah, I mean, to me that that suggests one that the wearable thing is multiple things. Um, two that. Uh, they're they're focused on fashion first. Not, yeah, not you know, second. I missed that word. Fashion's an important word, um, I think. But three, it, it, I thought it was most interesting that this guy was the sales director. Yep, because I that, thought so too. That's a completely different kettle of fish than than retail, which they already do, or or the CEO, which you could certainly see him tie more into the product side of things. Right. But this guy is not doing product. He's not actually making the things. He's he's selling things, and he presumably has connections with. The department, you know, these Asian department stores that sell LVMH products, or with, um, you know, the the duty free shops and like you know over here that I'm not over here anymore, but like that that sell that have LV bags that that sell you know champagne that sell all the perfumes. Like I think they're Christian Dior is part of them and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's super interesting because it's just it's not just that Apple's doing a new product, but they're talking about a new channel, a new distribution strategy. Um, and I would suspect that Aaron's would have a very a lot to say about that as well, um, because you know the traditional Burberry outlet. Yes, they are in the same place as Apple stores, but Apple stores like Apple stores have been in malls and stuff like that. Like the there's there's not a Burberry in in your typical suburban mall. Um, there is a Burberry in like the you know the Hong Kong airport or like the Taipei One right. building, like which is like these super high end shopping destinations right um, or like the the shops at caesar's in uh right in the middle of the like the most the best intersection of the the strip in vegas right and it, it, apple does do that internationally with their stores like so it, with this is something that's really interesting too that that makes that's really interesting about analyzing apple and i i wanted to get this um it's like it differs by region right the way apple presents itself in the U.S. is different than they're, they're presented in, like China, for example, where right. it's much more of a luxury good, and their stores are next to it's next to the Louis Vuitton store. Whereas right. in the U.S., it's famously they're always next to Victoria's Secrets. Um, it's just a different it's a different presentation, and but yet they also have, for example, a true flagship. Uh, destination store on Fifth Avenue in New York. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they, they right? do both in the U.S. That they do both, yeah. right. That they're right there on Fifth Avenue with the true flagship, you know, it's almost, almost sickening how, how, you know, when you see how many people take pictures in front of it and, you know, with all the other landmarks in New York. Um, <laughs> but yet, you know, at the same time, they're at the Burlingham Mall in uh, uh, New Hampshire. Yep. 
No, exactly. And so that that's and the other thing is like this. This is why Apple will never release a low-end iPhone, right? Because the that that would hurt their that would hurt their brand in other parts of the world, even if um and and so it's it's super interesting the the hiring the sales guy because um that's why that also makes me think like you're not going to get into these stores selling a a smartwatch that looks good. You're going to get in these stores by selling a desirable object that also has this functionality. Um, and and I, that's the, again, I don't see a, there being a bulky screen on it. I don't see there being a charger with it. I think I see it being something that's very um, a range of things. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 super interesting. Yeah, uh, let me correct myself. Rockingham Mall, Rockingham Park. That's where I used to go to the Apple Store when I lived up in Massachusetts. It, it's great that we know more about like suburban malls than we do the names of luxury goods companies. We in, in beautiful Salem, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And and like I said, I, I and I stand by this. I really do. And the more in the weeks since I wrote it, I, I really do think that. Uh, it has to start with a design that before you even see what it does, when you hold it up, that you say, ooh, I might buy that and wear it. Yep. It has to. And I know that that sounds there, – there's a certain um, logical-minded engineering mindset out there. you know. And I think you know, sort of people who might be drawn more towards the Google side of things than the Apple side of things who thinks that's, that's crazy. Why in the world would you – why would that matter? You know, It's function first, right? And I'm telling you that for me, it, and I think for the mass market, you've got to start with something where you just hold it up, and before you turn it on, people say, "Oh, I want that." Yep. You know, I hate to say it. I think the iPhone was like that, and I think the most amazing thing about the iPhone was what the software did and how the screen worked. But I think you know they could have just held that up and not even turned the screen on and said, "Here's the iPhone," and people would have been like, "Oh, where do I get in line?" So what's interesting is this takes it full circle, right? Because we just talked about the beginning where the hardware actually wasn't Apple's most important thing. It was the software. But in a lot of ways, for a new category, it's it is. it's the hardware that gets you in the door. Yeah. And then yep. you hook people and now and now they're they're stuck on the software and they and they're not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. It's you know, it's never never you know, there's there's certain areas where the software is more important and certain areas where the hardware is more important, but it never never you you're always in trouble if you start saying that Apple is either a hardware company that does software well or a software company that does hardware well it's it's you you got to see it as a virtuous cycle that they're you know neither is more important than the other they just have, there's certain aspects of the product cycle where one is more important than the other all right let's call that a show ben thompson thank you where can people find more people who want more ben thompson can go to let's say there's stratechery stratechery s-t-r-a-t-e-c-h-e-r-y.com yeah, just Google Ben Thompson blog. Well, Ben Thompson, I show up. At, I show up at first. People always give me a hard time because my website's like official name is Stratechery by Ben Thompson, but with a name like Ben Thompson, you have to like yeah, pull every I don't trick blame to you. make sure you. Uh, I don't blame you one bit. Uh, there's the Exponent podcast, yep. which I've been listening to. Very good. That's at exponent.fm. Exponent.fm. Yep. I just did that by memory. Yeah. No, I like. I, I think. I, I don't know if Marco started it, but that's where obviously where I got it from was the whole yeah. like, .fm for podcasts. Yeah. Oh, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it gets totally memorable. And, um, and it's easy to get names too because it costs like 80 bucks a year, right? Which is high enough that people aren't going to squat on it. Um, right. But not like yeah. crazy. So Yeah. It's funny. You get to be uh, an adult and you have 80 bucks a year and it's actually a good thing. 
Whereas I remember when <laughs> right. I first started registering domain names and it was like, what do you mean you want $15 a year? I, I just registered one for $8 a year. It's, what's funny though is I, I, I have my domains registered at, at a, a company called Gandhi. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they tell you like how much you've spent on domains. Oh, that's terrible. Why would you do that? I know it's, 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 it's pretty, cause now it's been years, right? I've been carrying domains for like 10, 15 years at this point. Um, that adds up. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like when Mike Montero was on the show, it's like, you never tell an addict how much they've spent. <laughs> I know. It's right? so true. Yep. Like you get a bar tab, but they, they don't put like a thing at the bottom of your bar tab that tells you like, here's what you've spent year to date. <laughs> 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 right. Nobody would do that. Like your beer distributor does not give you a, a year to date, you know, tab. It'd be crazy. Oh. Uh, anyway, last but not least on Twitter, uh, excellent Twitter account. You are uh, at Monk, M-O-N-K, Bent, B-E-N-T, as in Ben Thompson. That's me. Uh, so thank you very much. Great show. This was absolutely great. I think it was worth it just for thinking of Android Wear as, as Windows Mobile 2.0 alone. Because to me, that's it's just puts the finger right on the middle of the button of what I see as being the problem with it. Anyway, thank you, Ben. Good to be here. I'm hitting stop.